Hi, John. How are you this week? Good, Elliot. Getting ready to jump in the car and go to Columbus, Ohio to see Marquette play on Friday and hopefully on Sunday. So it'll be a fun week to see some Marquette alums and more importantly to see the Golden Eagles play Vermont and then potential USC or Michigan State on Sunday. Yes, uh, they finished strong in the uh, Big East tournament and uh, and for us alums following along. That's uh, been great. Crazy week, and we're only in the middle of it. There's a number of things we just want to quickly highlight. Uh, obviously, we are all well aware of the issues with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, and we'll leave to other experts to talk about what's happening and what's going on. A lot's happening there, and as I've said, we'll leave that to the experts, but we'll, all of us in our community watching that carefully. Yes. And then a number of other th- One is uh, there was an announcement from the Justice Department about seven people being charged with, this is quoting from the press release, sophisticated stolen identity tax refund fraud scheme that sought over $100 million from the IRS. So that's a big one. And we'll talk about that. What else is on your mind? And then also there was a $17 million fine paid from the uh, the former head of Wells Fargo. And forgive me, I don't have the name right in front of me, Kerry Tolstead. That was from the OC. And obviously that's a clear example of an executive in a financial institution being directly responsible, in this case, for sales practices that we are all well aware of in the creation, which is an understatement of unreasonable sales goals to its employees. But the agreement was the prohibition order, obviously, to ban Tulsa from banking, but also the payment of a $17 million fine in settlement. So that is on the OCC's website today. And again, bears reading. It's fraud related. So it's certainly adjacent to our community and the various topics that we look at. Yes. And just for clarity, she was the head of community banking. That's right. I'm sorry. And the other thing I want to mention, we've seen this in various publications. I saw it in the New York Post, saw it in moneylaundering.com. And that is that House Oversight Committee is apparently, according at least to the reporting, getting access to suspicious activity reports filed by financial institutions on Hunter Biden. It'll be done in camera, so they won't be getting paper copies, but they'll be able, according to the reporting, to review suspicious activity reports. Regardless of your politics, this is very troubling to the financial sector because the value proposition for filing SARS is that information does not necessarily mean a crime has been committed, but it's the bank making a determination based on their analysis that the transactional activity is potentially illegal, but clearly suspicious, and they get filed that way. And you get a civil safe harbor for filing those those reports. Now, if Congress gets access, which is not the first time, apparently the Senate Permanent Investigations Committee a couple of years ago, did also get access, I believe, in camera of SARS, but none of those SARS were ever leaked. That's the key. If any of these get leaked, you can bet, as they say, your bottom dollar, the financial institutions will have to think twice about filing SARS, even with the civil safe harbor, for fear there'll be reputational damage. So I can't overstate enough that regardless of what you think about the politics. It's got nothing to do with that. It has to do with a 30-year history of protecting SAR confidentiality. And I think this is an 
important area. So the hope is, the fervent hope is that these documents, even though they're getting seen in camera, will not be leaked. I'm not as optimistic about that, but let's hope that I'm wrong. Yes, and that safe harbor is something that important and seriously discussed back and forth by all the all the right stakeholders back at the time. And it's been tested a number of times and been upheld. As you point out, there has been at least one prior disclosure to a congressional committee. But I too am concerned for the same reasons. Thinking back to the days in counseling clients about how to determine what is suspicious and how to make file SAR, no SAR filing decisions, and you weren't being required to make a crime has been committed determination may help frame that decision process. If there is disclosure about these, that could have some kind of a a chilling effect. I'll tell you this, uh, going back in time, when SARS were first crafted, I was at the American Bankers Association. And when these first filings occurred, At the time, there were several cases of IRS agents that uh, reviewed the SARS and then actually went to the bank and said, you filed these SARS. We're going to talk to the customers that you filed on. We immediately protested. And to the IRS's credit, they made sure that stopped almost immediately. But the fear there was ramifications to the institution from the customer that learned that SARS were filed. So this is a little different, but again, the key is the confidentiality and the protection of that information. Once that changes, the whole system could come tumbling down. So you have to really think carefully about this. Yes, I agree. So let's talk about the case with IRS and the Justice Department. This is, as you've said to me offline, this stolen identity refund fraud is unfortunately very common. And this is these are cases that DOJ and IRS have been working on for quite a while. Yes, I did a little looking after reading this press release and you and I talking about it. And there's a fair amount of material, not surprisingly, on both the Justice Department Criminal Division's website and on the IRS website, going all the way back to beyond 2012. But in 2012, the Criminal Division did something that it rarely does, and that is that uh, where it has primary jurisdiction of these cases, it actually shared that jurisdiction with the U.S. attorney's offices in an effort to move these cases along in a more expedited way because of the impact. The criminal division and the IRS have both testified to a number of congressional committees over the year. The crime that is very uh, hard to detect, so more often than not, the enforcement is reactive, and it weighs heavily on the elderly. And the fraud is capturing live social security numbers from any source that the fraudsters can get them. And that can be from phishing. It can be from stealing them from other sources like hospitals and places like that. And then using those to file fraudulent returns in the name of the holder of the SSN and claiming, since the returns are made up, claiming refunds, large and small, and receiving the refunds to the fraudulent address that's included in the filing, and receiving the refund based on the first layer of processing by the IRS on the filed return. In this case, it was obviously much bigger. There were over 370 false returns filed, claiming total refunds of a little over $111 million. So 
if you do the arithmetic, these are large returns with very low refunds related to them compared to the average filer. I think those kind of things, unfortunately, just play on people's feelings that, you know, that somebody can figure something out that they can't. The fact that they're focusing on these scams is really important, but they get elevated now because we're in tax season, of course. So I, I think it's important that take a look at that and do our best to do outreach to our friends and neighbors, and especially the elderly, to make sure they're not caught up in, all, in any of these scams. Yes. Another element that the IRS works hard to emphasize is that they don't make phone calls to individual or corporate taxpayers just asking for your social security number or things like that. And this would be, a, as you said, an outreach opportunity for uh, colleagues and listeners to reach out to their customers and remind them at this time of the year to be on guard, both for phishing emails and also those fraudulent phone. Just quickly going back to the Wells Fargo case and the press statement from the OCC, they reference back to the earlier charges and orders of prohibition. And besides the former head of the community bank, the community bank group risk officer, the former general counsel, chief auditor, the executive audit director, all had to pay fines and penalties back several years ago. And there's a hundred page document if you really want to get into the weeds and what happened. But the bottom line is that the bank promoted and maintained a business model that clearly incentivized employees to engage in serious misconduct for many years in terms of sales practices. So the media has covered this pretty extensively, but if you want to go back and look at some of the examples typologies, if you will, in, in there. The OCC has links to those previous orders on their website. Yes. And for those of our listeners who are not familiar with the prohibition order, this means that anyone against whom a prohibition order is issued can no longer work at an insured depository institution in the United States, which basically takes away their opportunity to work in the industry that presumably they've spent a lot of time in. It's a very serious uh, penalty in addition to the, the obviously the cash penalty, but these were very serious activities. And the government's pretty, I think, measured in when they use prohibition. But in my opinion, this certainly seems just Next week, we will have a webinar on March 23rd, one o'clock Eastern time. I'm happy to say we will have Alan Ketley, the executive secretary of Wolfsburg Group, and William Langford, who is the co-chair, and William is a Mitsubishi bank. And we're going to drill down on Wolfsburg's various guidance, documents, statements, comment letters, and the whole mission of that organization that's been around for a couple of decades and really does have a, a major say in global policy issues. So we're going to have a great conversation on that again ne next week, March 23rd at 1 o'clock Eastern time. Yes, and you can register for that at our website. That's amlrightsource.com. And we're looking forward to having a large group in the audience. We also want to put in another shameless plug for the AML Partnership Forum, which will be April 26th through the 28th at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. This is the second of the forums. And you can register for that at amlpf.com. This is a public-private partnership that we've worked on with both other organizations in the, or in the private sector, as well as our law enforcement partners. So there's heavy participation from uh, HSI and the FBI and IRS 
CI. We have a great lineup of presentations. There's no vendor hall or anything like that. There's no press. This is behind closed doors, an opportunity to really trade best practices and learn from each other and to network. So we'd urge you to, if you haven't already, to take a look at the website and to sign up for that and join us in Washington. That sounds good, Elliot. Stay safe. Have a good rest of the week and we'll talk again. Yes, drive carefully and enjoy the games. 